Howdy. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all the socials. We are at History and Film on Instagram and HIF Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at TrackNerds, and you can always email me at Simmons at TrackNerds.com. Enjoy the show. So this week with The Social Network, obviously the story it tells is not one that represents a significant historical event, or it is is about real people, but it's not worldwide historically significant. But I wanted to use this movie as our opportunity to talk about the internet and social media at large. Yeah, this is kind of a uh, a first. I mean, we're you know almost to the to the end of this series, but this is a first in that it's kind of the first subject that we're talking about that I actually you know have experience and memories of from my own life. Oh, you're you're right. 9-11 we talked a little bit about, but you said you were kind of too young. Yeah. Right. But like, you know, with, with Facebook, like that's that was like in my lifetime. And I was like at the perfect age as it was coming out to like experience it and, you know, and being a part of it. Yes. And b- b- before we break it down, I want to actually cut to a conversation Logan and I had on the Trackners podcast. when We were talking about our favorite movies, best movies of the decade. And spoiler alert, if you haven't listened to those episodes, it was Logan's favorite movie of the decade. So we're going to cut right now over to us talking about it over there. And then we'll we'll pick back up with some of the historical accuracies and some of the broader issues. So listen to that real quick. Ow. <laughs> All right. So my number one, which I will say this went it went back and forth between this movie and Hell or High Water. Okay. I, I did change it actually several okay. times where I had Hell or High Water at number one. Um, but I think that this movie is actually... The, the, I enjoy them about the same amount. I think that this movie is actually a better made movie though. Um, so this is a movie... It's a 2010 movie written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by David Fincher. The Social Network is my number one movie of the okay. decade. interesting. And so you don't listen to probably as many movie podcasts as I do. This was the overwhelming consensus best movie of the decade from the critics I listened to. I did think that it was probably a basic bitch choice. I don't mean to apply that. What can I say? <laughs> I, 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 love, I love Aaron Sorkin dialogue. I absolutely love Aaron Sorkin dialogue. Uh, it can't be beat. Uh, David Fincher visually is an unparalleled director. Um, the music is it's uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross from Nine Inch Nails. They do this really cool, like, understated, but, like, it's still, you can still obviously hear it, but it's not in-your-face score, but it's absolutely perfect for what the movie is. The music is there when it needs to be. It's not when it's not. The, the editing in this movie is awesome. The way that they cut between the two depositions, and then it, they almost do, like, shot reverse shot but it's across time so they'll do like a shot where they'll say someone will say oh this is what happened and then they show a thing that happens back in the past in a flashback and they cut back and you see someone else's reaction to having that same Mm. memory you know you have the the whole unreliable narrator kind of because everyone's telling their side of the story and you know what they perceive to be the truth from from back in the day and then also the the subject matter it's about the founding of facebook and i think that i think that almost so when this movie came out i didn't know if it was going to age that well because i figured oh well when facebook becomes less popular maybe this movie won't hold up as much but i think that that's wrong 
for two reasons. One, I think that this movie is going to outlast Facebook. Um, I think that this movie could have been made about anything and with the the people who are working on it and the quality of the filmmaking and the quality of the story that's being told, I don't think that Facebook is Facebook is really incidental. Like it, it doesn't really matter. It it the movie's uh, not actually about Facebook. No, yeah. it's not about Facebook. It's it's uh it's about greed and it's about friendships. But at the same time, in 2010, I thought that maybe in a few years, Facebook wasn't going to be that big of a deal anymore. People would probably gravitate away from it, just like they did Friendster or MySpace mm. or any other social network that kind of went under. But, I mean, now more than ever, with the advent of, you know, fake news and uh, search algorithms and, you know, people living in their bubbles on social media, I think... It's almost more relevant now than it was in 2010. I think that their social media in general has a bigger grip on our culture and on our society, specifically in the United States, than it than it ever did in 2010. Um, so I I think that the the subject matter it doesn't need Facebook for the movie to be successful, but also Facebook is is more relevant now than it than it was even when the movie so came out. I will admit that I was wrong on that big part right there so in 2010 and i am going to kind of undercut <laughs> some of your points here i think but uh, <laughs> so in 2010 i put the social network as my number seven movie from 2010 wow and at the my, my argument at the time where i was wrong is i didn't think it would hold up well because of the fleeting nature of social media platforms like myspace up to that point now uh -huh. I was dead wrong on that point, specifically with Facebook. And also, kind of to your point, it's not even about a specific social network. So, so begin. Based on all these other podcasts saying, like, the, I forget there was, there was one, I think it was the big picture. or every, I think specifically, basically, they're talking about it. They had, like, three critics on. They all had their whole list. They did exactly what we're doing. All three basically said, yeah, social network, no question. Like, it's not even close. As for the best movie of the decade. And so I was like, okay, I'll rewatch it. I'll rewatch it, fully expecting it, at least make my top 20. I just, you know, I'll, I'll let it leapfrog from stuff. And I rewatched it, and I was like, kind of to your point, it is very good filmmaking. I love Aaron Sorkin dialogue. Fincher's direction is great. I just don't find the story in the film that compelling. I mean, again, it's great. It's, it's good. I like the movie. I don't dislike the movie at all. I just, I, it just doesn't do it for me. I almost don't think the story is the point, though. Well, like, that is the point from you of watching movies, though. That's it. That's it. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. But for me, like, like the 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 cool the cool editing, the cool visuals. Again, uh, this movie has probably three scenes in it that I would that I would say I could put up for best scene of the decade. Uh, the the opening scene in the bar where he's having a conversation uh, with his girlfriend. With the, with the with the boom 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 yeah. boom 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 boom, the dialogue in that scene is, it's quintessential Sorkin yeah. dialogue. In the dorm Second room, one, coming up with the thing that night. Oh, okay. Yeah, see, that's awesome. That oh man. Okay. Okay. Uh, the second one that I was thinking of is the uh, the crew race mm. where they have uh, in the hall of the Mountain King, but it's like that really like distorted, like kind of like grindy oh, version yeah. of in the, the hall Trent of the Mountain version. King. Yeah. The Trent Reznor version. Uh, and, and, you know, and they lose the race and then they go into the clubhouse and find out if that Facebook's uh, gone. Facebook that they're trying to shut down is now in Europe. Right. Uh, 
but that the scene where they're racing specifically is awesome, awesome filmmaking, awesome direction from David Fincher, awesome music from Trent Reznor. And then the the other scene that I think is very underrated in this movie is the very last scene where there's no dialogue, there's no uh, snappy edits, there's no, there's only one character on screen. It's uh, Jesse Eisenberg, and he's just sitting there refreshing the page for the friend request that he sent the girl at the beginning of the movie because it's finally him trying to basically participate in this in in this social network that he has created. Well, and that this whole thing has actually been about that. And it's, yes, and he, the whole time, all he has really wanted was to distinguish himself and to get, and to show her that he's not an asshole, that he is, to get her approval, basically. That's that's fascinating, because I find that exact moment a bit of an eye roll. Like, I think it's too, I think it's too on the nose. I think it's too on the nose. Uh, I mean, I guess. No, hey, I'm in the minority here. Most people agree with you. (laughs) I, I love it. I love it. So you said you went back and rewatched this. How how many times do you think Twice. you've seen once this movie? Once in the theater in 2010, and once like three months ago. Oh, okay. I watch this movie probably once a month. <laughs> okay, I, okay. I'm not even I'm not even exaggerating. Um, it's it's on Netflix right now. I've had it like uh, I think I had a hard copy at one point, but like there have been countless times where I'm like, I got some time. I'm gonna sit down and watch a movie. I'm just going to go through, you know, probably watch something that I've already seen, you know, just kind of shut the old brain off for a little bit. Oh, what's what looks like it's good. Oh, social network. Yep. That's going on. <laughs> yep. I'm putting that on. Interesting. And that happens probably probably once a month. So I, I've seen this movie probably over 30 times. And that's wow. not exaggerating. And I don't think I could. I think some of the awkwardness and the uncomfortable situations, I don't think I could. I don't think I could make it rewatchable, even though, again, I like the movie. I'm, I'm not saying I don't like the movie. But yeah, I don't find it that rewatchable either because like it's just I feel so bad for Andrew Andrew Garfield's character the whole time and just all those awkward situations and even like the Winklevoss twins going to the dean, which is kind of like overstemping their place and they really shouldn't have done that. Like all those awkward moments, I just, I cringe. I just I can't watch them. I don't know. I even even an awkward moment written in Aaron Sorkin dialogue. <laughs> I I could oh man I eat it up I just I eat it up it's man. so good I, like we kind of went like we were I think <laughs> it's kind of funny I think we were pretty much in lockstep through nine picks each and then we both questioned <laughs> the other one's number one <laughs> 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 like we were all good I'm like yeah 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 no dude <laughs> <laughs> so X X oh, Machina man. movie of the decade consensus <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, so let me address the yes, Oscars yes. for this movie because I got some stuff to say about the 2010 Oscars and th- about this movie specifically. So this movie won three Oscars. It won for Best Adapted Screenplay because um, it's based on a book, The Accidental Billionaires, which I haven't read, but I heard is actually pretty good. Um, it won for Best Original Score. Um, so obviously you, you get Sorkin and Trent Reznor are getting Oscars. And then we get into the best picture and best director. Uh, best picture went to King's Speech, which was not on my list. Was it on your list? No, it wasn't because no one likes or cares about that I movie. I had it ranked three uh, higher for this, 2010, though. This garbage. <laughs> the The social network should have won best picture in 2010, and David Fincher should have won for best director. And not so that was Tom the Hooper. fighter. That was my number four. So I would have had the fighter uh, should should have won. 
I don't, I don't know. I think I snub either way, either way, King's Speech. I I don't I don't know. I, I that's another I critic consensus one where most people considered it an overrated best picture winner, and I've rewatched it with yeah. that in mind. I'm like, I really like it. It's a really good movie. I But see the the, the British royal family stuff is right up your alley though. You're right. I so and, and so I, I don't know, but yeah. And then best actor, obviously Colin Firth uh, won for best actor that year as well. And then cinematography, uh, it did not win, uh, but that's because Inception came out that year. So that was a tough one. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. And then sound mixing, it, it lost to Inception as well. But yeah, snubbed by King's Speech. And then Speech, uh, another very high one though, and ninety six percent on Rotten Tomatoes with an eighty six audience score. So right up there. <laughs> so yes yeah, so before we get into some of the accuracies and inaccuracies of the film itself i wanted to again just kind of take the broader scope of the internet and social media in general and again like you said we can kind of talk about this both from our personal experiences and then kind of the stuff that you you know is happening behind the scenes so my rough understanding of the beginnings of the internet does just kind of go back to the beginnings of computers into the 1950s and then when you have all these kind of oh places of higher learning whether it's a military operation or or a college that wanted a way to communicate with each other and so they did kind of started figuring out ways to connect these computer hubs and share information that's kind of a super simplified way to think about it right basically it 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 started off and it's kind of a kind of a gray area thing as far as like what is considered the you know the beginning of the internet Basically, there, it started out as just trying to connect computers so they could talk to each other. But a lot of times it was like it was a proprietary thing. So, you know, only computers oh, right. that were, you know, the exact same like make and model or the, or the same make could communicate. Right. Otherwise, not speaking the same language. Right. So then it, it became, you know, kind of standardizing communication between computers so that you know if if you have a dell and i have a macintosh that we can you know communicate back and forth and then basically the beginnings of well, that became the the beginnings of what we know today as the internet right and just got to where the net that that network of computers talking got bigger and bigger and bigger over a few decades right. to the point that by the time the public became involved with it it was just a big enough network it's like oh well why not let regular users tap in to this same network that kind of the military and colleges and stuff have been using previously yeah it just kind of opened it up to where regular people could get on it so when we first got on the internet as a society in the 90s it had existed for a while it just wasn't something that was really set up or capable of handling the loads at first and the story i always tell and i've been telling this since college but it's like the more time goes by, the sillier it seems. And of course, I'm getting older in real life anyway, because most people do. And <laughs> but it's just it's just fascinating. And then when I'm when I'm in an old person's home, you know, far far in the future, uh, it's going to be fun to tell a story that seemed kind of cute when I was 25 telling the story. But you know, when I'm 95, it's going to be like, oh dang, he's old. <laughs> so my senior year in high school, the school got its first external dial-up modem. So we had computers already that we just did word processing and stuff on. They basically bought 
a, a modem that would obviously be built into the computers in just, you know, a, probably a few months after this or, you know, years after this. And it was just sitting next to the computer, could plug into the back, and then that would plug into the phone line. So it was an external dial-up modem. And that was my senior year of high school. And I, just, and I remember thinking, too, that Yahoo's a weird word. So, like, I remember first hearing about Yahoo at that time, too. And what else I thought was funny then, too, my freshman year of college, email was brand new. I think WSU was offering students, if you wanted, you could sign up for an email address through the school. But it was so new. And again, anything that's new, you don't know to what extent you even need it. So my roommate had an email address. And I was like, oh, whatever, I'll use yours, too. Like, we'll just share an email address because they're brand new. And who knows any different? And the other big thing that's changed since then, too, because I still have some of my you know old IDs from the late 90s is, so the thought at the time was, oh, well, whatever you do, do not make your email address your real name. And so that's why all the addresses from back then are a little goofier. Uh, was it like a like a potential identity theft thing? Yep. Yep. We were it, that, again was an idea we came up with. That's what the you know so 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 called authorities were kind of were advising or whoever, whoever in the zeitgeist somewhere was don't use your actual name as your email address because reasons. And so, oh, okay. And so that's why even to this day, like your username and screen names are all like kind of Monte Cristo stuff. Yeah, exactly. Because I know, so it seems silly now, but it's like, because that, I just didn't want to change it. So it's just, it's just easier to keep using the thing I've been using since the late nineties right. than to try to, I don't know. And it, my name is more common anyway, too. So it doesn't yeah. seem like it would be, it wouldn't be a big signifier to try to claim anyway. Now, and of course, then you on the other side, probably really don't remember a time before the internet. Uh, yeah, and this is kind of a, yeah, again, with the, like we were talking about with, with 9-11, like, I, I do remember growing up, like, the first few years of, of my life, we didn't have internet. I don't, I think we, we were probably, I was probably, like, six or seven before we even had, like, a desktop computer in our house. Okay, okay, okay. But, yeah, again, basically my whole life I've had access to the internet. But you still recognize the dial-up sound? The, yes. The, the, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. Which, which people probably five years younger than you would probably no longer even recognize that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Facebook itself was kind of interesting, too. So at first, Facebook was just for students. So it, right. it, it almost kind of evolved in the same way the internet itself evolved, which is why it's kind of a, probably a good one to talk about. So it was kind of first at schools, for you know specific colleges. Yep. Then you had a school email address. I remember you know, working at the DVD store here in town. And I think it was Cody was going to set me up with a Facebook, but I basically couldn't because I wasn't, you had, basically, you had to be like a minor or a student at the time. Yeah. And the fact that I was, you know, 25 or 30 and out of school is like, nope, you're not, you're not even allowed to have a Facebook address or uh, account yet. Yeah. Well, cause it, it started out, you had to have it like, it was only the schools that it was, you know, at you had to have an email address from those right. schools. So like when it started off, right. you know, Harvard.edu, you had to have a, a Harvard email address. Um, and then it, yeah, as as it progressed, I I do remember it. I think when I f- had my first Facebook account, it was you 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 did have to have a a .edu email to sign up with. Uh, okay, okay. Which I, t- anymore is not the case. No, right. Well, right, because didn't it have? I well, I should I should have looked. Does, does it have like two billion users? Yeah. So well, I was now? yeah I was I was gonna uh, bring that up. But so on the on the poster for this movie, it says you know it's got the tagline "You don't get to 500 million friends without making a few enemies." 
And at the time, it was like, oh, whoa, 500 million. That's so many Facebook users. Yeah, it's over two and a half billion users now. Right. So five times what it was then. And that's even with some people kind of, well, one, some people are not extensively. Some people are kind of dropping away from it. But then, you know, what I've noticed, you know, from the coaching side of things where communication with athletes, Facebook used to be a viable form to communicate with your athletes. Well, Gen Z isn't on Facebook. Right. They've moved on. Yeah. It's now it's now that now I use Facebook to contact the parents and yep. the high school students now couldn't care less about Facebook. Yeah. Most of them have accounts because you kind of need a Facebook account almost as like an email address right. in a lot of ways because it yep. logs onto apps for you. Yep. So it's like that's kind of the purpose it serves now, which of course that was kind of a brilliant move by them too to kind of stay yeah. relevant yeah. in that regard. I basically only have my Facebook account to use Facebook Messenger. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And that one. Yeah. So, Messenger and logging into apps. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and the only posts that I put on Facebook are just posts like from Instagram that I just automatically post to Facebook. Like I, I can't oh, remember right. the last Can time I just post, like right. posted something on my Facebook exclusively. Right. And I do in groups for coaching purposes to mm-hmm. contact parents essentially. But yeah, you're right. I, I kind of started to stop engaging on there and stop posting stuff on there. And yeah, it's just interesting to see how that has changed and will continue to change. But yeah, we're, we're 10, 11 years after the movie came out and kind of, as we talked about on the other podcast, it's, uh, it's still surprisingly relevant. And now what we didn't get into when we were talking about it as a movie were the accuracies or not inaccuracies. And you actually might have a better idea than me on what all of those are um a little bit they, they kind of combine and streamline some things right yeah well in even the, in even the whole idea that mark was so fueled by the x i mean that was kind of just that the movie more right that right? that was that was more yeah that was more for the story than than real life um there there was i mean the the lawsuit is real like you know the the winklevoss twins are both Correct. real people uh eduardo Savern was a founding member that did kind of get you know, screwed out. Railroaded. Of, yeah, railroaded. Yeah. But basically, um, from emails that were leaked about it, it was kind of one of these things where, like, they knew they were going to get sued, but they just figured that, well, we're going to make so much money that it, like, it doesn't matter. And, and they kind of do address that in the movies. That it's it's a speeding ticket. Like, the amount of money that they were going to make from oh. from doing what they did, was it was going to be just such an insane amount of money that settling a lawsuit over it, even though it was like hundreds of millions of dollars that that was like, it was worth it. Oh, huh. And here's, here's a good quote from uh, Cheryl Sandberg. Who's like their COO, or at least during 2010, she was. And she says, uh, in real life, he was just sitting around with his friends in front of his computer, ordering pizza. Who wants to see that for two hours? Yeah. <laughs> So, which kind of speaks to what we've talked about with many, many movies in the past, that real life just kind of happens and isn't that interesting, but you have to then find the story and write the script to make it engaging, and that's what they did. So, it's a version of actual events, but it is ultimately just a movie, and real life doesn't quite work that way. It is kind of interesting, too, how we've seen a lot more of Zuckerberg in real life with testifying before Congress and things than we would have ever thought after seeing the movie. And Eisenberg playing uh, Zuckerberg is a little more human, if also a little more 
vile than the real life Zuckerberg. Real life, real life Zuckerberg seems to try yes. and care more about what people think, but he's also a little more robotic and less uh, less emotional or whatever. Yeah, he gets he gets memed to death for like acting like an alien, pretending to be a person, yes. or acting like a robot. Whereas the Eisenberg character was very human, just a little sociopathic, maybe. Right, and and obviously, you know, a lot of the, you know, Eisenberg portrayal of Zuckerberg, I think, is informed by the Aaron Sorkin screenwriting. Right. You know, people don't actually talk like that in real life, um, and especially Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> doesn't talk like that in real life. Oh, right, that's true. He's so clever in the movie because yeah. Aaron Sorkin is writing his stuff. He has all these snappy comebacks and everything. Aaron Sorkin should have wrote the congressional testimony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Although he did have the one, and the word choice isn't that great, but he did have the one kind of quick comeback when the congressman is asking him, like, how the heck do you make money on this thing anyway? And he's just like, well, Congressman, we saw ads. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was quick-witted-ish, but yeah, definitely right. not in uh, the way Sorkin well, would have written it. And I guess we, since we're talking about the congressional hearings, we should probably talk about why. Oh, to give the give the context of why they were on there in the first right. place, yeah. Uh, in recent years, Facebook has had a lot of issues with, like, user privacy, you know, giving other parties access to, like, your information and your friend's information. There was a whole Cambridge Analytica scandal where they Cambridge Analytica, like unbeknownst to users on Facebook, had, you know, millions of users info and was using it to target political ads. I think there was what was the name of the documentary, the Netflix documentary about it? Uh, the Great Hack. So The Great Hack is a it was a 2019 documentary about the Cambridge Analytica Facebook and how it influenced the 2016 presidential election. Um, it is actually a pretty good movie. Um, I, I do recommend it. It is kind of interesting to see how influential social media actually is when it comes to things like elections and how much information they actually have on people. Okay. It, uh, it's uh, 87% on Rotten Tomatoes. Boy, it'll, it'll make you want to delete everything. <laughs> No, and it sounds like basically a lot of the stuff that we complain about, it's like you agree to when you sign up for your account. Yes. So it's like that's why it's not illegal, right? Right. And, but you're agreeing to it, but you're also just like, eh, it's just more convenient to deal with it and I'm not that concerned. Yeah. And it's funny because it ties into like you almost hear of, you know, concepts of like, oh, in the future, the government's going to put chips in you. And it's like, no, no, no. In the future, you're going to volunteer to have the chip put into you because it's going to be too inconvenient not to have it in you. Well, and that's kind of what having a Facebook account and is. And also, they don't have to because you already carry this. And I'm, well, I'm holding up my cell phone. You're already carrying a cell phone around with you everywhere you, that you go. So, you know. True, true. Location data. You know, I mean, just look at like the track and trace stuff for COVID-19. Like social media companies. Right. Google. The government, like, this sound maybe sounds a little tinfoil hatty, but they know so much about you. They don't need to put a chip in you. Because they can track the data. It's not about, right. they're not invading your privacy, they're invading your phone's privacy. <laughs> right, and, and, and they, don't, they, don't have to, they don't have to hack you or do anything, you know, surreptitiously. Like, it's all in your user agreements, but who reads them? Right. I mean, I'm, right. I, I don't probably should but because it'd be too inconvenient to not be included but again what's going to change because at the end of the day so you're going to not agree and not have your smartphone well no so okay click right yeah uh, i guess ultimately there could be a, if it was somebody who was egregious enough you would have class action law- lawsuits which is kind of what you do end up having right against mm-hmm. like cambridge Analytica yeah. and places like that that they basically and i'm pretty sure the courts kind of agree with that as far as 
if a reasonable person would not actually read this, you know what I'm saying? Of course, we'll kind of like, even if you sign a contract, if it's not reasonable that you, I forget how this works, but I think they're, if they were like saying, you agree to give us your car and everyone right. was just clicking through, yeah. a judge would throw that out. Even if, even if you agreed to it. Just like the, uh, like the South Park episode. South Park, where yes, they, exactly. It's like the, the Apple Terms of Service says that if, it's like if you click agree that you like agree to become part of a human centipede. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, you clicked agree. Why did they keep clicking agree? <laughs> we could kind of speculate here on maybe where we think this technology could go. So where do you see social media being in the next 10 to 20 years smartphones being in the next 20 10 to 20 years what do you what are you kind of what's your your predictions here um i don't see it going anywhere um you know facebook maybe you know facebook proper obviously is is a lot older user base now like you're talking about before gen z is essentially non-existent on facebook or if they are it's only out of necessity but facebook is so big at this point that they can basically afford to do Pretty much exactly what they did with Instagram, where any kind of startup that represents any kind of threat to them, like in their in their market, they can they have enough money they can just buy it. Well, I could see some monopolies getting attacked then in the next ten to twenty years. Do we have like a Teddy Roosevelt kind of thing come through? Yeah, like a like an antitrust thing. Right, break up Amazon. It's like okay, you can't be this and this and this. It's like pick your lane, and then the other thing's got to be a separate company. Yeah. Um, which again sounds crazy, but that's exactly what Teddy Roosevelt did with some of those other businesses. Basically, weren't they kind of like vertical, vertically integrated in a way that he eliminated? I, I don't, I don't remember the details of all that. I don't, I don't know a ton about that, but and it's kind of different with social media too because people are because of social media, people are going to gravitate towards one. Like you're not gonna, you can't really have five different Facebooks that are all the same, like, you know, obviously like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are, you know, like the big, the big three really. Well, but Facebook owns Instagram. You could basically say you have to sell it or something like that. Yeah. And make it a separate entity. Yeah. But you know, or, or, or your, or how Facebook is involved with logging into apps. You can basically, basically excise that somehow and say, no, you're a social media platform. You're not this element. That element needs to be made. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying this could be a political fight mm-hmm. over the next 10 to 20 years yeah. as far as splitting up some of these big conglomerations. Um, as far as the usage itself, so I was kind of more because, you know, you had like the Google Glass a while, you know, at one point where do phones become glasses or do those kind of things, you know, evolve uh, where our phones have become so much and replaced so many devices from the past. But 20 years from now, have we moved on from that? Maybe, maybe there's a way, maybe does it, they obviously we already have Google watches. Is it, is there some other way that maybe 20 years from now we're getting that same tool? I don't want to say fix because I think they're, they're obviously it's, it's a tool that we use Yeah, and maybe it does. Maybe everyone's wearing, you know, a Apple watch or it's all, all watches. We all have the watches or we all have necklaces or we all have glasses and it's all just kind of free. There's a hands-free thing. That's kind of, I think relevant and important that I can see becoming bigger. Yeah, But it, it also, it's, it's kind of a, it's a trade-off too, because I, I mean, and, and this is just, you know, me thinking about like how I would use something like that, but like I would never buy Google glasses because the screen resolution isn't as good. And you, you know, like if I'm trying to look at stuff on my Google glass, I can't imagine a situation where I'm trying to walk around and like do Google stuff anyway. So why would I not want the bigger, better resolution, not see-through screen of my phone? Why would I trade that for glasses? Or what if it's what if it's contact? I think I actually mentioned this in uh, Magic Carpet Ride, my book. Is well, what if it's contact lenses and it's all just 
either like thought operated, you know, contact lenses where it's just pulling up on on literally in its full resolution taking over your current vision space or over or it's a uh, augmented augmented reality yeah. through contact lenses. I mean they, I mean it sounds crazy, but everything's crazy until you have it. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean it it'd be cool. It it, it sounds a little black mirror-y. And that's what I was thinking as well. <laughs> yes, correct. For those who haven't seen Black Mirror, it's a show that deals with a lot of these kinds of questions in the not too distant future mm-hmm. and kind of turns them into morality plays. Uh, but yeah, it is going to be interesting. And again, it's, you always kind of feel like we're always at because we're always in the present, which means we always feel like we have the most technology ever because we kind of do. Mm-hmm. And we never know exactly where it's going to go. But it is also interesting, too, when you look at you know things like Star Trek in Next Generation in the late 80s, early 90s. Picard is, you know, reading off a tablet and they had, you know, picture screens that would rotate through or play video. And it's like, oh, man, that's insane. Yeah. Like, no, no, no. 20 years later, we'll have it. Right. Yeah. With iPads and digital digital photo screens and stuff. It's like, no, they have it. The uh, I don't I don't know if you watch CinemaSins, the YouTube channel. Some, yeah. But they, they always point out, and I think this is hilarious, but like in futuristic movies, they're like, they'll show like holograms and they always point out like, why would this be a thing? Why would anyone want a hologram that is monochrome, is one color? It's objectively worse than just looking at a TV screen display the this thing in you know 1080p or you know 4K HD. Why why would this hologram ever be a thing? Or or um, <laughs> you know like the they they'll have like if you're trying to show something of being like futuristic, they'll have like a, a glass screen that's like see through, but there's stuff projected on it. It's like why not just have a flat yeah. screen TV? That you can, the right. resolution is it's objectively better. Why would you not just have a flat screen TV? Like you're trying to like do this this next step up to make it look more futuristic, but it's just worse. <laughs> right now, I could see again. I don't know how the technology would work, but what if you had full 4K digital high resolution looks as good as real life hologram, and you would have like your TV as like a pedestal, and you could watch it from a 360 around, and it's giving you like you're watching a football game. As if you're there, three D. You could walk. You could watch it from any angle. You could walk around the quarterback. Yeah. As you're watching the game. Now that would be different, and that would be again sounds crazy, but it's crazy until we have it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and then probably the last kind of thing. Since we're kind of just using this as an episode to talk about computers in general, you get to the whole. You know, to what extent in the future will we be able to upload our consciousness new to computers? And then you get into the whole AI thing, which ties into when we talked about imitation game or in Ex Machina on the other podcast. And just it's, it's interesting to see where where that goes. And, and, you know, in the next few decades, we'll get to the point where you could upload a digital copy of your memories and consciousness to the cloud. And that after you die, people could still interact with this AI rendering of you that to them would almost feel exactly the same. Yeah. Well, and that kind of, that ties into, uh, to Ex Machina. That was our, our, exactly. It was my number three. I don't consensus. remember where you had it on your, on your list. I think at number nine. But yeah. Our, yeah. Our consensus best movie of the decade from, from trackers, yes. but yeah, it deals with AI. Um, well, and something else, you know, that kind of tangentially related to AI, but, that I think is going to have an even bigger impact, especially economically, is automation. automation. Yeah, yeah. You know, robots doing jobs that humans do now. There's a there's a really good CGP, CGP Grey video <laughs> called Humans Need Not Apply. 
about yep. about all of the all of the jobs that robots are already doing or already learning to do. And it's something like 60% of the workforce is like not not being done right now, but at least at least being developed. Right. Because the big, big one is truck driving. Yeah. yeah. Like truck drivers, retail, even things like robot paralegals that can do like a, a, yes. a human paralegal, like you're limited by your reading speed and, you know, you have to take breaks and you have to go to the bathroom and you can, you know, you, you, you have to eat lunch. Uh, and you can only read so much at one time, whereas a computer programmer or a robot doing that exact same job can search for keywords in every single law paper that's ever been published. Right. And start, you know, racking and stacking case law. Or they were talking about like a robot barista where, yeah, you know, you might have your special coffee shop where you're, you know, you go to and, and the guy there makes your, you know, special whatever coffee the best way, but most people don't care. Oh, and by the way, this thing's everywhere. So if you live in Los Angeles and you take a trip to Chicago, you can go to a stand that's the same robot and it knows based on your account exactly how you like your coffee and it'll make it for mm. you the exact same way. Just a little stuff like that. Um, yeah, self-driving cars is a huge one. You know, imagine every Uber, every taxi, every semi-truck driver, every city bus, no people are operating any of that. And the kind of the point of, of CGP Gray's video is that this has happened in the past, yes. but that this time's different. Yeah. So humans have always had to shift jobs based on changing technologies, but we could be hitting a critical point where there's not there's no new jobs. There's not enough new jobs right. for humans to migrate to. Right. Whereas we've always found a new niche and there's jobs that exist today that didn't exist. There's actually a lot of jobs. I you can probably find the percentage somewhere online, percentage of jobs that people have today that didn't exist 20, 30, 50 years ago, yeah. but that may run out and there might not be enough new jobs for a growing population and we have to figure it out. The example that he uses is when you use the statement, more technology or better technology means more better jobs for people. That phrase, that sentence sounds like it makes sense to people. However, if you say more cars equals more better jobs for horses, there you go. It's saying, you're saying the same thing. But people are like, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's absolutely ridiculous. Obviously, cars would right. are going to replace uh, horses that you know they they can do so much more that you know they they can go longer and further. And and so why why would you think that it would be the same thing for people? If you're right. automating, if you automate sixty percent of the economy, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden that sixty percent of the workforce is all of a sudden going to be able to. I mean, yeah, some of them are going to be able to get other jobs, but not all of them. And then you have this, right. now it's a huge problem because people are out of work through no fault of their own. The right. jobs just, just don't exist. Right. Basically, in the past, we were the cattle ranchers and the cowboys and the horse trainers. Now we're the horses. Yep. And so what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that video does a good job of showing exactly how easy it is slash will be to automate just a bunch of different jobs that you would have never even considered being like threatened by automation right they're complicated stuff like doctors yeah. could be yeah because a, a computer can diagnose better and he even talks about like oh well it'll free up more people to like you know make art and make music and he says well you know you can't you can't have an art and music based economy number one and number two oh by the way robots could do that too and he even brings up he's about uh <laughs> oh that this music that you're hearing in the background yeah it was written by a robot <laughs> yep yep 
it's it's gonna be interesting and i don't know i mean we'll well, i guess i think we can all just always think we'll cross that bridge when we come to it but that bridge might be coming in the next 20 years yeah and when we're not ready for it yeah fascinating food for thought yeah the internet age is here and we'll be until the apocalypse hits i suppose (laughs) because well it's kind of become a new utility you talk about it's Mm -hmm. like it's it's as big a deal as when electricity came around right and how that was just a game changer and now when the power goes out we're basically screwed because our whole society is is based around having electricity in our homes that's what the internet has now become right we are now 100 based on and our economy is based on having access to the internet this connection of computers worldwide and so it's that vital well and there's there's a lot of people that think that it should be a public utility that you know that uh right the city just provides it. And you pay your bill to the city. Right. It should yeah, be a, yeah. a municipal thing like your water or your electricity. Right. Or or their, or their government puts it out where just basically everywhere has free public Wi-Fi. Yeah. It could just be ubiquitous and the government just says free public Wi-Fi everywhere because it's that important of a utility to always have access to the internet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, interesting stuff. And next week we'll be headed back to Africa dealing with child soldiers in Beasts of No Nation. <laughs>